we start with the shortage of specialist doctors in British Columbia. We've all heard about the shortage of family doctors. The government's saying they're taking action on that. What about specialist doctors? A group of them have now written an open letter to BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. They say this is a dire situation. About a million British Columbians don't have access to medical specialists in their system. Let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Chris Hogue. Chris is a urologist at North Shore Urology. He's president of the Consultant Specialists of BC. Very pleased to welcome him. Dr. Hogue, thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Mike, for having me. <clears throat> you bet. I appreciate you doing this. So let's talk about the, the letter that you've written to the health minister this week. I mean, obviously, this is an open letter. You want the public to know about this. What is your message here? Specialists uh, have have watched uh, the public discourse uh, over the last six months. And uh, as the healthcare crisis is erupting, um, <clears throat> we've seen at the national level that the, the uh, discourse uh, is really recognizing the full scope of the problem, which is that this is a system-wide healthcare crisis. And yet at the BC uh, level, uh, it, it has been focusing on the very real problems in primary care, and uh, specialists have been very pleased to see that uh, action is being taken to try to uh, bolster our primary care system, but at the same time dismayed that we're, we're not seeing the same recognition of the significant cracks that have been uh, emerging for many years in specialty care and also find themselves now in, in a state of crisis. Right, and, and oftentimes... Uh, we're trying to draw attention to that. Right, and oftentimes when people see a family doctor, if they can get in to see a family doctor, if they've got a problem, they will often be referred to a specialist, a radiologist, cardiologist, right, a lab specialist. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Like, if there's a shortage here, what happens to people if they can't get to see a specialist right away? They go on a waiting list? Yeah, so so yeah. so that's how it works. You get referred from a family doctor, and, and uh, a specialist will review the referral. Um, they will often uh, uh, sort of try to triage it to try to pick out the ones that really need to see be, be seen quickly and, and the ones that... Uh, that are, are less urgent, and, and uh, those less urgent patients in particular, based on the information we're given from the referring practitioner, go on a wait list. Um, but the problem is, eventually, that, that wait list can become insurmountable, uh, and that's what we're seeing in British Columbia. We're seeing uh, patients on massive wait lists uh, to see a specialist, and the problem yeah. for which they were referred was, was, was less urgent at the time of the referral, but it may well be deteriorating while they're waiting, and that's that's a huge concern. What happens then is, is these patients uh, can get more ill, uh, and if yeah. the specialist is, is unaware, they can end up in, in emergency. They can end up hospitalized, uh, taking up beds, which then takes away from uh, surgical uh, productivity in the hospital because we, we need beds to move post, post-operative patients into. So it's, it's an interconnected and, and massive problem. Let me play a clip here, Chris, for you from the Premier here. So the, the Premier the other day was asked about the challenges in the healthcare system, the shortages, and there's a lot of pressure on this government to do something about it. Here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. Here's Premier John Horgan. I heard frustration, despondency, and a, and a, a lack of hope in some areas, and, and my job is to to hear those concerns. I'm well aware of them, that these problems didn't arrive yesterday and they won't be solved 
magically tomorrow. They'll only be solved if we uh, roll up our sleeves together. Is Premier John Horgan speaking uh, last week saying that, yeah, he's heard about hopelessness. He's heard about people who are despondent about the shortages in our health care system. He's aware of the problems and he's working on it. What do you think about that? Well, I, I think he's characterizing it correctly. Uh, healthcare workers and uh, our patients are equally despondent. Uh, the, we talk about moral distress. Moral distress is, is, as a physician, knowing that you have the capability of helping a patient but being unable to provide that, that care and seeing them deteriorate despite your will to do something about it. And, and I'm, I can tell you in the last 24 hours, I've received multiple uh, um, emails and, and tweets from, uh, from patients and physician colleagues. You know, I have a, a patient who, who tells me that uh, she's uh, been waiting for four months uh, for the results of her swab for possible cervical cancer and still no word. And, and wow. she's caught in the conundrum that she has no family doctor. And so she's having to check this online herself. She's out there alone. Uh, patient that, that needs gallbladder surgery and is having to wait four months just to get in the door to see the specialist for the first time for assessment. This, that's not even her surgical wait time. That's just the beginning. Uh, we're a, a dermatologist in Nanaimo who's telling me that, that wait times to get in to see her one year or longer now for potentially life-threatening skin conditions. You know, the, the, these problems are, are deep and go on and yeah. on and on. Yeah, and the, the medical conditions that you're describing there are obviously serious. Like if people have cancer, I mean, we often hear that, you know, yeah, we've got some waiting times for routine procedures in our system, but if you get a real serious illness like cancer, the system is awesome and you get great care. But are you saying like for, for serious illnesses like cancer and other conditions that the system is deteriorating? Mike, you know, physicians and, and healthcare workers in general have been excellent for many years in a system that has been gradually decaying uh, at... Uh, you know, plugging the holes with bubble gum is the way I put it. And, and we, we have, have bent over backwards uh, to ensure that those patients that have those serious conditions continue to try. We try everything we can do to, to continue to provide the care in the timely manner that these patients need. But, but there's a limit to what we can achieve. And, and unfortunately, yes, we are now seeing breakdown in, in things like cancer care. You know, I had a patient in my office yesterday who I referred a month ago to an oncologist, uh, and and he came in to, to touch base and make sure things were moving along, and he got an appointment, but it's still two months down the line. That's a three-month wait for an oncologist, for a patient that I've already identified has a significant cancer and, and needs to be seen. Oh. You know, these that's not right. This is a problem. Yeah, okay, what needs, we just got a minute or so left here, what needs to be done? Like, what are you asking the health minister to do? So I, I think we, we have to sit down and we have to uh, have collaborative discussions with specialists uh, about how we start addressing these massive wait list problems and all the various components that contribute to them. And, and we have to start coming up with innovative ideas, just as uh, Dr. Lafontaine said from the CMA yesterday. Um, and there are multiple ways that we can innovate. Um, we can look at team-based care. We can look at re referral reform to improve our referral system, potentially looking at mm -hmm. physician extenders to improve the efficiency of those specialists that we do have with the existing workforce. Uh, and, and 
developing ways to improve uh, communication between specialists and between specialists and our family physician colleagues, which also adds efficiency and seamlessness of patient care. Chris, thank you for coming on today. We're going to follow it closely. Appreciate your time. I appreciate you having me. Okay. Let's talk about this frightening situation that happened yesterday at BC Women's Hospital. This was reported yesterday by the Vancouver Police Department. They received calls on 911 from the hospital. Reports of a woman armed with a knife screaming and threatening staff. At one point, staff barricaded themselves in a room with babies as the woman walked around the ward with a weapon. Okay, let's discuss with Steve Addison, spokesperson at the Vancouver Police Department. Steve, thank you for coming on. No problem, Mike. Okay, obviously this is uh, just a horrifying situation to, to hear about. Can you describe what went down here? Yeah, so um, just after 10.30 yesterday, we started getting a number of 911 calls from people inside Women's Hospital uh, reporting that there was a woman who was um, walking around uh, with a weapon. It was reported to us as being a knife. We were told that uh, she was in close proximity to staff, um, at least one other pregnant woman, um, other parents, and uh, had uh, close access to a number of babies. Um, staff had locked themselves uh, in a nursery with babies. And this is a ward at the hospital where um, there's uh, uh, 17 adults and infant patients, 20 to 25 staff members, and it was an extremely uh, tense and volatile situation. So we believe that this uh, it was a, an active and imminent threat to uh, members of the public, to babies, to staff members, to other parents. Um, our officers responded uh, very quickly when we arrived on scene. Uh, we encountered the woman who was still a, a threat to herself. She was a threat to other people. She was not compliant. Uh, we were able to take custody of her. Uh, we deployed a beanbag shotgun, which is a, um, a, a tool that we, uh, that we use when we're dealing with people who are um, uh, uh, often armed, non-compliant, violent, and we can't get close enough to them to put hands on them. Um, we deployed some beanbag rounds, um, uh, she, and that helped us gain compliance. We were able to take her into custody. No serious injury to her, um, uh, no injury to any members of the public, to any of the babies, to any of the staff members. Um, so she's, she, she was arrested um, for uh, weapons offenses, assault, and for breaching some conditions. And, and we've got a lot of work to do with our investigation here. So we'll continue on with uh, gathering evidence in this case. Okay, it's good to hear there was no one seriously injured in, in this incident. As, as I'm sure you're aware, Steve, there, there have been some people saying that police overreacted here, especially using a, a beanbag gun against this, this woman. Like, when police arrived, did she still have the knife? She was still actively, um, uh, she was still a threat to herself. She was a threat to others. It was reported to us as being a knife. Uh, when we arrived on scene, she had a different weapon um, in her possession. Uh, we haven't disclosed what that weapon is uh, for evidentiary purposes and, and just for the uh, integrity of the investigation. But uh, she was absolutely a threat to herself. She was a threat to other people, vulnerable people, um, some of the most vulnerable people uh, in our society. So we're yeah, extremely yeah. proud of the work that our officers did to act decisively. We've seen in other places, like look at um, most recently, like the place like Uvalde, Texas, uh, where you have an active yeah. deadly threat. Uh, in, in that case, 21 people died. The officers were on scene within three minutes, but they waited more than an hour to make entry. During that time, was people were calling 911, asking for help, uh, they did not act. And as a result of that, um, people died. Uh, we weren't gonna, going to let that happen here when we had a situation where people were um, in active danger, um, uh, we acted uh, decisively. Our officers acted yeah. entirely pr appropriately and uh, managed to resolve a, a very, very volatile situation and do so uh, safely. 
Let me play a clip here for you that's running on our newscast this morning. Angela Marie McDougall from the Battered Women's Support Services, who feels police overreacted in this case. Here's what she told us, and then I'll get your thoughts. Postpartum is a very delicate moment. It's called the fourth trimester, and it requires an extra level of kind of support and care for women. And this is a, a really critical transition between mother and child. How on earth could we ever think that the police coming with a bean bag gun could be an option here? Okay, she says that the woman in question here was uh, a new mother herself, and she was distraught that her baby was taken away by um, child care workers. And that's why she was acting this way. That's what she says. Yeah, and we're going to withhold some information with respect to the um, specific circumstances because um, it's very there's a very real possibility that charges will be laid and this woman will be identified by name. So in order to protect her privacy and any sensitive issues with MCFD, um, I'm, I'm just going to hold back on, on a little bit of information there. But what I can tell you is that we had a situation where people inside the hospital, social workers and staff were running scared. They were calling 911. Uh, people yeah. were screaming in the background. There was a doctor being chased. There was a woman who was, we were told had a knife who was trying to get into a locked nursery with babies uh, and staff members sheltering in place. Um, I don't know what the alternative uh, would have been if this wasn't it. Um, our officers acted uh, in accordance with their training. They acted decisively. Uh, they resolved an extremely volatile situation and did so safely. Had they not arrived when they did, had they not had the tools that they had, namely the beanbag uh, shotgun, which is an appropriate use of force, the, al- the only alternative may have been lethal force, and that would have been a tragedy. And we're so fortunate um, that this was resolved without serious injury to uh, the, the suspect and without any injury to anybody else. Steve Addison, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. You bet, you bet Mike. Thanks. All right. Let's talk about the rising cost of living now, the record high inflation rate. Lots of people feeling the pinch. Many people are working multiple jobs. I've talked to many young people, particularly. They tell me, forget about the old model where you might get one job with one company, reliable salary and benefits and work there your entire life. That's the old system. Many people now working multiple jobs. So we got people taking gig work jobs. We got side hustle jobs. Lots of young people starting up their own business. Brand new survey out from RBC. It says many young people are looking at entrepreneurship as a way to fight the rising cost of living. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Don Ludlow. Don is the vice president for small business partnerships and strategy at RBC. Don, thank you for coming on. Hi, Mike. Uh, great to be here. Yeah, thanks a lot for coming on. This new survey, you've taken a look at entrepreneurs, small business owners, people who want to start their own small business across Canada. And a lot of these are, when we're talking small business, we're talking really small business, micro entrepreneurs. What is that, a micro entrepreneur? Yeah, a micro entrepreneur is somebody who's really just starting and it's uh, it's not a material business yet and, and typically is done as, I think you referenced it, a side hustle, uh, wow. you know, perhaps with the hope that it grows into something larger someday for sure. Yeah, and how is inflation driving that? Well, I think, you know, what our survey showed was that uh, because of the current uh, economic conditions, the rising cost of living, inflation, a lot of things um, you know, a majority of Canadian small business owners or aspiring entrepreneurs are motivated to start 
uh, a micro business or a side hustle. And that goes to 84% when you look at just Gen Z and millennials. So a real motivation here. Yeah. What kind of businesses are you seeing starting up? Well, the full gambit, although it, it is a carry on from the, the trend that we saw during the pandemic, which is uh, a lot of um, a lot of consumer services and retail type businesses and some uh, what, what you might call business to business type businesses or consulting or professional services. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about that rising cost of living. Like I've talked to a lot of young people who just say, you know, this economy is crazy. Like prices are going up so much they can't they can't make it on one job. A lot of people looking at multiple jobs. Like, what are young people telling you? Yeah, it, it's along those lines, Mike. It, it, you know that this uh, the rising costs of inflation are are driving a motivation to search for other solutions. Uh, um, eight and ten of the people that we surveyed said that one income is just not enough for for people to achieve uh, their financial goals and uh, and what they want. So, hence, you know, why a side hustle is uh, is a good option. Almost three quarters said that uh, that uh, the rising cost of living on its own was enough to start a side business. And three quarters also said, like, hey, I'm going to start it up and, and hopefully this becomes my my main uh, source of income someday. So it could grow into something bigger. Now, what is a side hustle? Like when you hear that term for people that may not be familiar with it, like what is a side hustle to you? Because I think for a lot of people, they hear that and they think like, oh, you're talking about, I don't know, driving for Uber or delivering meals for skip the dishes or something like that's a side hustle but it's not just doing that type of those type of gig jobs right sure i think it's a, a pretty ambiguous term but it, in a yeah. business sense for sure it's a it's a small startup business that's that's kind of done uh, side of desk um you know uh, from home typically so perhaps not something where you're renting a retail space or an office space but it's uh, it's small it gets going it's something that you're doing uh, in a bit of your spare time, but probably something that you're pretty passionate about and, and really interests you and, and you think, hey, this this could turn into something someday. Yeah, or sometimes it's not a passion, it's just a requirement. <laughs> you're going to pay the bills. You need more than one income for a lot of sure, people. And you, see, uh, you see a need or an opportunity and, uh, and, and you leap on it. Yeah, yeah. What are some of the, uh, like when you take a look at some of the it is an interesting survey you guys did like tell me about emerging tech sort of new technologies that are out there especially a lot of young people are savvy in that regard as yeah, a way as a way to re, re, uh, reach their customers set up businesses that's it i, I think uh, technology is playing a big underlying role in this because it's removing a lot of the barriers that might have existed previously to uh to starting up a business so you know the rise of e-commerce is allowing people to access clients all over the place globally and uh, and really get to them quickly and efficiently. Um, you know, the ability to work offline and remotely, you, you don't need a, you don't need to go rent an office or retail space or a warehouse. You can uh, use technology to do that from, uh, from your living space. And there's all kinds of, you know, quick and simple and affordable digital solutions that can help you organize your business, whether that's track your expenses or manage your inventory. And, you know, those those used to be technologies that perhaps were only accessible to large companies, but now, uh, you know, they're, they're uh, very accessible to micro businesses. So technology is really enabling entrepreneurship. Uh, and, and it was pretty incredible to see. Speaking of Don Ludlow, vice president at RBC, uh, we're talking about young people starting up their own businesses, more and more young people going to the gig work side hustles. 
Okay, Don, as a, as a banking guy, like if a young person comes to you and says, look, I've got an idea to start up this small business or a, mic- a micro business, a micro entrepreneur, are they going to get a loan from RBC? Like how do you guys, how do you guys uh, review that? They, they can get all kinds of things from, uh, from RBC, Mike. I mean, I'd say, first of all, you know, do some research and, and come and talk to us. Uh, you know, we have a tremendous online resource called RBC Small Business Navigator that has all kinds of tips and tools and resources that, that helps you think things through and sort of put a plan in place. Uh, and then once you're ready to, uh, to go and, and, uh, and pull the trigger, we can help you register and incorporate a business through an, an app called Owner, O-W-N-R. It allows you to uh, register and incorporate a business in as little as 15 minutes, very affordably, uh, and, uh, and get up and going. So there's all kinds of things that we can do uh, for small business owners, um, you know, including financing, but, uh, but also so much more. And, and once you're up and running, um, you know, there's all kinds of things we can do to, to deliver, you know, insights that help you, uh, you know, find new customers, yeah. grow your So lots we can do. Yeah. And in this, this is a weird economy we got right now. We got kind of like full employment, but we've got this record high inflation going on as well. And it's a really, really weird labor market out there as well. Like, how is that affecting you know, young people who are trying to start up a new business? Like we got rising interest rates as well. Interest rates are going up. I guess if you go to RBC and ask for a loan, you're paying higher interest rates these days too, right? Well, I think we have all kinds of uh, really affordable ways to uh, to finance a, a business right out of the gates, and and uh, and not all businesses need financing out of the gates, but there's lots of options that uh, that we would have for uh, for uh, a young entrepreneur. And, you know, and I think it's a great time, actually, to be thinking about this kind of thing, because Canadians as a whole, uh, you know, are very receptive to uh, to small businesses right now. There's there's a real wow. desire to support small businesses. And and I think that's actually really great for the Canadian economy. Don, thanks for coming on to talk about it today. My pleasure, Mike. All right, let's talk about the campaign for a four-day work week now. Have you heard about this? How sweet would that be? Four-day work week. You'd get a long weekend every weekend. Now, this is an idea that's been around for a long time. It's never really got off the ground in a, in a big way, but the pandemic sure has invigorated this campaign. And now check this out. The City of Merit right here in B.C. giving this a whirl for their employees. They say this is about attracting and retaining workers in a very tight labor market. Move to a four-day work week. That could be attractive for people. Got a great guest standing by in this, Joe O'Connor. Have a listen to this here first. Now, this is Sean Smith the chief administrative officer in Merritt, talking to Jill Bennett yesterday. We have to be incredibly mindful about uh, the decisions that we make. And in an environment where attracting talent has been difficult and we want to retain the people that we have, we're looking for uh, low or no cost solutions to make a real difference uh, in incentivizing people to come and stay in Merritt. Yeah, so a four-day work week. So what they would do is you would work four days a week. Now you'd work a little longer on the four days you are working, so you'd still be working the same number of hours, but you'd only be working four days a week. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Joe O'Connor. Joe is the CEO of Four-Day Work Week Global. This is the global campaign for a four-day work week. Hey, Joe, thanks for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Pleasure. 
Okay, Joe, I find this a really interesting issue. So tell me, make the pitch here for a four-day work week. Why do you think this would be a good idea? So the four-day work week is something that enables us to have a conversation, not just about how long we work for, but actually about the way that we work. And what we've seen from the hundreds of different companies that we've worked with to support them to make this transition to shorter hours is that for many companies, the four-day week is already here. We already have the productive capacity and the technological tools to make this work. And when you create a framework that really gets serious about addressing inefficiencies in your business, whether that's overlong and unnecessary meetings, poor use of technology, distractions and interruptions in the workday, then actually you can go a long way to delivering the same output and the same results in less time. And that's what we're seeing with the companies that are participating in our trials all over the world, including in Canada. Okay, that's very interesting. So tell me a little bit about that. So there are some, there are some companies that have done this, right? How is it working out? So our organization was founded by an entrepreneur called Andrew Barnes, who actually trialed this in his company, Perpetual Guardian, all the way back in 2018. It's a New Zealand-based company. And he had been reading some research from the UK that suggested that office workers were only truly productive for just under three hours a day. And what he wanted to figure out was, is this happening in my business? And if I change the conversation away from the length of time that people are spending at the office or at the desk or on the clock, and really in exchange for the transformative benefit of an extra day off, you know, try and create a sharper focus on output. Can I deliver better business performance? So he created this 180-100 rule, which meant 100% of the pay, 80% of the time in exchange for a commitment to delivering 100% of the output. So actually slightly different to the BC program, all of the companies that participate in our trials, it is genuine work time reduction. It is fewer mm. hours, but it's focused on delivering the same or better productivity. And we've released some data from the UK this week where we have 73 companies participating in a six month trial where over 90% of those companies have reported that their productivity has been maintained and in, in a large number of cases has, has actually improved since moving to the shorter work week. Okay, that's very interesting. Speaking to Joe O'Connor, CEO, four-day work week global. Does this sound like a good idea to you? Phone me on the open line and tell me if you think this would work. I think a lot of people would love it. Maybe if you're running a business, you may be a little dubious about it. Maybe having your your staff go down to four days a week. But if you have a comment or question about it, call me right now. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Hey, Joe, let me play another clip here for you from Sean Smith, the Chief Administrative Officer here in Merritt, British Columbia, on the four-day work week that they're doing as a trial there. He says there's lots of support for it. Here he is on CKNW yesterday. Initially, it starts around, you know, a, a table like everything else, but very quickly we ended up um, graduating this to bringing it to council as to whether they were interested in even us having us explore that, uh, and they agreed that we were okay to explore it, so then we canvassed um, staff, and uh, overwhelmingly there is support for this. Okay. Well, I'm not surprised if you, you canvass the staff, there's, su there's support for it, but Joe, I mean, in your experience, what about the bosses out there? I mean, do they like this idea of their staff going down to four days a week? 
So the leaders that came to us about this issue pre-COVID, they were primarily motivated by one of two things. They were either looking to solve a productivity question within their workplace, and they were using the offer and the gift of a four-day week um, as a lever to try and bring that about. You know, this is something that can really powerfully align the company's interests with individual employee interests um, because people are so motivated to try and make this work from a business perspective. The second thing was burnout. It, it was leaders mm. who were trying to address underlying issues around burnout and overwork in the work, workforce. Those two things have actually been overtaken post-pandemic by this question of recruitment and retention. And this idea that leaders see the four-day week as something that if they can manage to pull it off without sacrificing organizational priorities, performance, or productivity, then they give themselves a very, very significant competitive edge when it comes to attracting and retaining talent. And I think that that's hmm. something that's really driven the growth in the four-day week movement that we've observed over the past year. What about the, like for employers out there who are listening to this and saying, well, hang on a sec, if I'm going to go to a four-day week for my staff, wouldn't that mean a lot less productivity? Like I'd have to hire more people here to get all the work done. But I, I think you've already touched on this a bit. Like the concept that you have in mind is, okay, you go down to four days a week, work less hours, but the, you try to set it up where the productivity would remain the same, correct? For sure. You know, remote working and hybrid working has had a lot of benefits for organizations, for individuals, for society, but it hasn't addressed issues around burnout and overwork. In fact, for many people, when their workplace is their home, they find it even more difficult to switch off. And it also hasn't addressed fundamental inefficiencies within organizations. You know, I think lots of us would would, would, would be very understanding of this idea that actually, since we've moved remote or hybrid in a lot of industries, if anything, we have even more unnecessary and overlong meetings. We have even more digital distractions. So what the four-day week is doing is creating the infrastructure and the framework to actually to figure out how can we make our businesses more efficient and it's it's yeah. empowering people to come up with the solutions and the ideas and the changes to work practices that can actually bring that about hmm. speaking of joe o'connor four day work week global is his group let's squeeze a call in here on the open line chad on the line in abbotsford hi chad what do you think uh what do i think i, I worked for a four-day work week for i don't know 20 plus years it did create my fifth day being paid in overtime, which was great. And they had to hire an extra 25 people to cover for the four day work week. So uh, I don't think, I don't think it's a good idea for an employer, for an employee. It's fantastic. But uh, who can operate in a four day work week? What kind of job were you doing there? I was a pressman for the Vancouver sun province. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I worked there for a long time myself, not four days. Yeah. And we went to a four day work week yeah. Uh, it was a, a 25 employee, uh, had to extra hired extra 25, but my fifth day was always paid on overtime, double time. Okay. So but, that was great. It was but fantastic you think, but you, but you think, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it'd be great for the employees probably loved it. I'm sure they did. But do you think it cost the company more money though? Oh my gosh. Oh, for sure. It did. <laughs> That's why we yeah. probably all lost our jobs because of it. But, um, mm. that's another, uh, Another thing too, but uh, yeah, no, I mean he's not reinventing the wheel. Uh, yeah, he's just he's just trying to get people a four day work week, but there's a huge cost. Okay, thank the you for the call. Okay, because they can close. Okay, bye bye now. Thanks for the call, Joe. We got a minute left here. What do you think of that? 
I think that it's important to say that what we're talking about here is the four day week becoming the new normal, the new standard in the same way that the five day work week, eight hour day is across the economy today. We're not saying necessarily that this will happen everywhere at once, much like the five day week didn't happen everywhere at once. We're also not saying that, you know, for industries that currently don't operate with a standard nine to five, five day a week work week, that they would all of a sudden change to the four day week. What we're saying is that we have the productive capacity and the technological tools at our disposal right now um, to reduce work time across the economy. And this is something that we had been doing right up to the late 70s, early 80s in most advanced Western democracies. And since then, work time has flatlined despite the fact that we have seen incredible technological advancement, incredible productivity gains since then. We've seen globalization, the advent of the, e the internet, the advent of yeah. email. So we think this is something that is well within reach. And for a lot of companies, it's actually already there, but it's just buried under the rubble of these inefficiencies and unlocked potential that actually, once they get serious about addressing them, offering a four-day week for their employees and not reducing productivity is very, very achievable. Joe, it's a very interesting issue. Thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.